0: Hello. Well, my new book, 12 Rules for Leaders, the Foundation for Intentional Leadership, with contributions from Bradley Madigan, is out now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else you buy books. In this book, I address the 12 leadership areas that I have found leaders need to be the most intentional in to be the type of leader followers actually want to follow. From establishing a foundation of leading teams through managing conflict effectively, all the way through leading teams through change, Knowing what to do and why to do it can help readers like you become better leaders in the real. 12 Rules for Leaders is a written continuation of the work I've been practically doing, leveraging the leadership training and development products and services of Leadership Toolbox all the way to leading keys. 12 Rules for Leaders represents a distillation of practical lessons I've learned, absorbed, and transmitted From training and developing 15,000 managers and supervisors over the last 10 years. Reading 12 Rules for Leaders and living it is like getting coaching from me directly without having to pay my full coaching rate. Look, this is a book written for all those leaders, some who call themselves managers and supervisors, who believe that their daily leadership decisions don't matter or that their hard-won leadership positions are too innocuous and meaningless to matter much in the chaotic world of the now. 12 Rules for Leaders is the confirmation you are looking for that you are the leader for exactly the historical moment happening right now. Head on over to leadershiptoolbox.us and scroll down the home page. click on the Buy Now button, and purchase in hardcover paperback and Kindle format on Amazon – 12 Rules for Leaders, the Foundation for Intentional Leadership. And that's it for me. Out. Hello, my name is Hasan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 28, with the two black guys, returning yet again, uh, DeRolo Nixon, Jr., barrister esquire should i go with barrister esquire is that appropriate for our listeners they work for me yes Uh, all right so he likes those all right well i uh, make my bread it is all about that and speaking of making bread we're going to make some hay while the sun shines today and we are going to talk today about the federalist So I have the Signet Classics edition. You can go ahead and get your edition if you would like from the Library of Congress, uh, Project Gutenberg, or anywhere else online where you want to go look at stuff for free. I would recommend reading these because they are argumentations uh, for the U.S. Constitution, written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and the late, great, and balding John Jay. I don't know that he would have appreciated being in the fraternity with me and DiRolo, but he was a different man from a different time. And in our time today, we are going to break down the Federalist Papers. We're going to talk a little bit about the meaning of the Constitution and why it is important to have a Constitution. We're also going to discuss specific, uh, specific Federalist Papers, including the one that I'm about to open with right here. From the Federalist Papers by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, Federalist Number 9 by your friend and mine, uh, Alexander Hamilton. A firm union will be of the utmost moment to the peace and liberty of the states as a barrier against domestic faction and insurrection. It is impossible to read the history of the petty republics of greece and italy without feeling sensations of horror and disgust at the distractions with which they were continually agitated and at the rapid succession of revolutions by which they were kept in a state of perpetual vibration between the extremes of tyranny and anarchy if they exhibit occasional calms these only serve as short-lived contrasts to the furious storms that are to succeed if now and then intervals of felicity Open to view, we behold them with a mixture of regret arising from the reflection that the pleasing scenes before us are soon to be overwhelmed by the tempestuous waves of sedition and party rage. If momentary rays of glory break forth from the gloom while they dazzle us with a transient and fleeting brilliancy, they at the same time admonish us to lament that the vices of government should pervert the direction and tarnish the luster of those bright talents and exalted endowments for which the favored soils that produced them have been so justly celebrated." From the disorders that disfigure the annals of those republics to the advocates of despotism have drawn arguments, not only against the forms of republican government, but against the very principles of civil liberty. They have decried all free government as inconsistent with the order of a society, and have indulged themselves in malicious exultation over its friends and partisans. Happily for mankind, stupendous fabrics reared on the basis of liberty, which have flourished for ages— have, in a few glorious instances, refuted their gloomy sophisms. And I trust America will be the broad and solid foundation of other edifices, not less magnificent, which will be equally permanent monuments of their errors. Eat it, Karl Marx. Actually, I added that on the end. That's actually not there. He predates Marx by a good hundred, good 120 years. Uh, it strikes me, as we open today, uh, in reading the Federalist Papers, and there are quite a number of them, as a matter of fact, um, in total. Uh, and in my edition of the Federalist Papers includes the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, um, and, of course, the Constitution. Uh, with extensive notes there are 85 federalist papers in total and we'll talk a little bit about uh, where they came from here in just a moment but it occurs to me it strikes me in reading these with DeRolo, that nothing of importance or with the potential for importance ever got built without their first being confrontation Mm -hmm. the trouble with many people in our modern unserious era And the reason why we do, one of the many reasons why we do this podcast is that we have raised the psychological trait of agreeableness and openness to the height of virtue, at least in the public and celebrity sphere or the sphere of higher education. And we can claim that this is merely a veneer to cover other evils, but it is some trait we have raised nonetheless And we have also moved inexorably in the direction of making disagreeableness, even a little bit of it. Well, we've moved that to a level of violent destruction. We now equate words with violence. This is where the disturbing trend that has been building over the last 15 years in this country, and it does disturb me quite greatly, this trend of a lack of support of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and calls for it to quote-unquote go have come from all the way to canceling comedians who tell jokes that make our made-up identities. And yes, I said made-up. Our pretend identities feel bad. Nah, nah, nah. Nah, nah, nah. One thing you realize when you read the Federalist Papers is that the writers and the supporters of the Constitution came from sterner stuff. They were the original, and I can't say this word because kids listen to this podcast, but they were the original F-around-and-find-out generation. And they argued, and they fought, and they backbit each other, and they did it all in public. In the defense of a republic, they were seeking to build and protect not only for themselves, but also for their posterity. Remember the Declaration of Independence? Yeah. What is it DeRolo said on that episode? Come and take it. <laughs> These yeah. are the federal yes these are the Federalist Papers from the Library of Congress and I quote The Federalist commonly referred to as the Federalist Papers is a series of 85 essays written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay and James Madison between October 1787 and May 1788 The essays were published anonymously under the pen name Publius in various New York State newspapers at the time The Federalist Papers were written and published to urge New Yorkers to ratify the proposed United States Constitution, which was drafted in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. In lobbying for adoption of the Constitution over the existing Articles of Confederation, the essays explain particular provisions of the Constitution in detail. For this reason, and because Hamilton and Madison were each members of the Constitutional Convention, the Federalist Papers are often used today to help interpret the intentions of those drafting the constitution close quote which we need to understand their intentions and we need to interpret them accurately now more than ever before and so as usual in order to get to the bottom of all of this in order to gird our loins as we try to turn the corner on the next hundred years of this republic we have back our good friend DeRolo Nixon. So let's start off with this, DeRolo. Why did New York State matter? Uh, In national politics, New York State doesn't matter too much now. But back in the day, back in the day, (laughs) with the 13 colonies, why did New York State matter? Let's start with that because people are going to listen to this and they're going to go, why New York State? Wasn't Virginia more important if they know a little bit of history? Or, or they may just say, well, I don't understand because who cares about New York now? I mean, yeah, they got a great city there, but so what?
1: Well, I mean, at the time, it was the federal capital, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, New York, its commercial weight, those were always important. At the time, it was not... Uh, the population colossus it would become in the 20th century before slipping back uh, into a more modest place where, you know, she finds herself today. But anyway, um, Pennsylvania had more people and I believe Virginia also had more people. Um, But New York and its commercial interests were important. Um, It was the seat of the federal government. Think of the embarrassment of uh, where the federal government is seated. There's a new convention In this case, not meaning the getting together of people, but the actual document produced, Mm -hmm. okay, an agreement, a convention. um, And to have that convention not be ratified by the state where the federal government is sitting would have been singularly embarrassing. But there may be other factors you're also after.
0: I think people underestimate – well, people underestimate just – I, it tells you, it kind of demonstrates, actually it doesn't tell you, it demonstrates just how old our country is, that New York State was once considered to be this 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 powerhouse, right of, um, of federal power. Um, it's amazing when you when you ride around or you drive around upstate New York, the number of monuments that you see to uh, revolutionary war battles that occurred there. Um, the amount of Revolutionary War history that is there. Um, And then you move to a state like any other state other than New York. I'll use a state in particular, a state like New Mexico or even Arizona, where they are relatively new states. They're relatively young states. Uh, Most states in the West are, whereas states that were in those original colonies were old. And so you talk about how the state was populous, and it was the seat of the federal government. But these were also well-read people. And when you read the Federalist Papers, one of the things that jumps out to you is just how well-read, I mean, Federalist Number 9, that bit that I just read there, just how well-read these men were. But they were writing, well, let's start off with this, or let's go to this. To whom were they writing these papers, and who was meant to understand them? Of voters,
1: um, people who were going to vote to decide if the Constitution would be adopted and also influence those who would. New York had, you know, very, and still does, has very many publications. um, And the free press of New York is an institution in and of itself. And so it's the type of place where if you want to get an idea out, you go uh, still up, up till 2022. Even with all of, you know, the the vicissitudes of life and other changes, even, you know, with the current political stifling, you know, obnoxious political climate, you still, if you want an idea published, you can go to New York. Someone will publish it. There will be some press who will print whatever you are trying to declaim to the masses, as it were. But uh, I don't believe the audience was ever meant to be the masses in that At that time, there still would have been a substantial amount, I wouldn't say a majority, but a substantial amount of New Yorkers who couldn't read anyway. And so, um, and with property qualifications to vote, you know, and obviously, you know, male suffrage, uh, half the population wasn't voting anyway. Um, So, yes, but uh, a valiant effort and a valiant PR effort, right? Um, Just the brilliance of Hamilton, because I believe it was his idea. To say, well, why don't we, you know, we need to work to sell this in New York. So why don't we just do what we would do to sell any other idea? You know, we'll just start writing about it. And to then on a consistent basis, churn out these numbers is genuinely impressive. Um, because it wasn't as if he didn't have other things to do.
0: Right. And these aren't blog posts. I mean, let's be very clear. Like these are tightly written letters and they are directed to A population that understands greek and roman history understands myth understands democratic institutions understands the nature of what democracy is but hamilton madison and jay to a certain extent are also seeking to educate right like they're they're trying to teach the people you know who they are uh but they're also trying to teach people about who this what this document is meant to do what this constitution is meant to do what they were seeking to do in Philadelphia. The things we talked about last week, right, Um, when Ben Franklin um, made his speech, and go back and listen to our last podcast, go back and listen to episode 27 where we talked about the Constitution. Um, But um, Franklin talked about how the arguments that they had been having, his closing speech before he signed, um, the arguments that they had been having needed to stay within those walls. And then it seems as though immediately Hamilton was like, yeah, forget you, Ben. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> but it's a P they're they're So they're, they're tightly written, but they're not, they're not exhaustive in their life. That's impressive. Um, right. that prefigures the age of, uh, I can't exactly say Twitter, but certainly of social media where I don't know who reads super lengthy posts, um, who has time to do that, who has inclination to do that. These essays are written in a way that they can be read usually without interruption in under 10 minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and that's
1: right. great for digesting an idea, digesting an argument. But the reason I bring it up now is, I don't think he was presenting the full, um, and, and intentionally wasn't presenting. Certainly not Hamilton wasn't presenting the full um, two sets of arguments or multiple sets of arguments around a certain point. He's trying to sell his position, Perfect. i.e., the Constitution should be adopted. Yep. Um, and and you know, the, and they all three of them did, but um, Hamilton certainly um was not as judicious as madison was i would say in presenting what the other side's arguments were um in fact was it in nine where i noted yes so he has a quote from montesquieu so i guess first first the fault lies with montesquieu but um there's a quote in here from um de l'esprit des lois volume 1 book 9 chapter 1 and reads the following quote a republic of this kind able to withstand an external force may support itself without any internal corruptions period the form of this society prevents all manner of inconveniences period close quote and it's just like i underlined any and all because i'm suspicious of the superlative not necessarily rhetorically but certainly as a lawyer <laughs> and right. so um Obviously, every society has corruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a point, of course, that Madison would take up in the very next Correct. number of the Federalist, right? Factions, um, their they're form of, especially when, when they start to grow teeth and claws, they become a form of internal corruptions, perhaps to which Montesquieu was referring. But anyway, um, I think that fit well within Hamilton's essay because I think Hamilton does not do the, did not do the best job Of not, um, he provided detail. He sang the praises of his points, but he didn't seem to give much
0: credit to opposing arguments. Um, well, he did, he did what many young men do, which I'm, I'm going to go on a little bit of a jog here, not in this episode, but over the next upcoming episodes, I'm going to go on a little bit of a jog about young men because I'm, I'm concerned deeply about young men in our time, but he did exactly what young men have historically done. He said, um, I've got this weapon. I've got this fist. I'm going to hit you with it as many times as I can. And aren't I great? <laughs> and then kind of sort of danced away, right? Whereas in number 10, Madison takes the position of a much older man, which is I'm going to lay out, and maybe not much older. I mean, they were only maybe a couple of years, you know, difference between the two of them. Um, but I'm going to lay out this thing, this argument in a very deliberative way. And you see this in number 10, which DiRolo brought up, which is a good segue into The Federalist, number 10. Among the numerous advantages promised by a well-constructed union, none deserves to be more accurately developed than its tendency to break and control the violence of faction. The friend of popular governments never finds himself so much alarmed for their character and fate as when he contemplates their propensity to this dangerous vice. He will not fail, therefore, to set a due value on any plan which, without violating the principles to which he is attached, provides a proper cure for it. The instability and justice and confusion introduced into the public councils have, in truth, been the mortal diseases under which popular governments have everywhere perished, as they continue to be the favorite and fruitful topics from which the adversaries to liberty derive their most specious declamations. The valuable improvements made by the American Constitution on the popular models, both ancient and modern, cannot certainly be too much admired, but it would be an unwarrantable partiality to contend that they have as effectually obviated the danger on this side as was wished and expected. Complaints are everywhere, heard from our most considerate and virtuous citizens, equally the friends of public and private faith and of public and personal liberty, that our governments are too unstable, that the public good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties, and that measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority." However anxiously, we may wish that these complaints have no foundation. The evidence of known facts will not permit us to deny that they are in some degree true. It will be found indeed on a candid review of our situation that some of the distresses under which we labor have been erroneously charged on the operation of our governments, but it will be found at the same time that other causes will not alone account for many of our heaviest misfortunes and particularly For that prevailing and increasing distrust of public engagements and alarm for private rights, which are echoed from one end of the continent to the other. These must chiefly, if not wholly, effects of the unsteadiness and injustice with which a a factious spirit has tainted our public administration. So right there at the beginning, he starts going into factions, but he gives something to the other side. He says, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, Factions are a real problem. They're tearing apart our country. The Articles of the Confederation aren't working, um, and yet, and still, and, and this, is, this is a great sort of sort of juxtapose. Um, he says he's in essence saying by by not offering their solution, he's saying you have no solution, which is a brilliant, by the way, rhetorical trick, um, and it's very subtle, and you only really pick it up if you know what to read for. And then he talks about the two methods of curing the mischief of faction, the one by removing its causes, the other by controlling its effects. Um, there are, again, two methods of removing the causes of faction, the one by destroying the liberty which is essential to its existence, the other by giving to every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. And then he does something which I think is brilliant in this one. He goes into human nature. Talk about how the Founding Fathers understood human nature, because I think that gets a lot of short shrift. They lived in the world before psychology. Like, they didn't. they didn't have any of that they had religion Mm -hmm. and they had uh they had religion (laughs) and that was really it they didn't have freud so how the heck if i'm a modern person listening to this which what other person would i be uh listening to this i'm a person in 2022 i live in the backwash of 120 years of psychology how is it that these people with religion understood human under understood human passions almost as well if not better than we do
1: um, well, they are extremely well read in the classics, right? So it wasn't just religion, meaning the Holy Bible, right? Uh, almost entirely. Um, I'm even in the in the the instance of oh, his name is is slipping my mind, but there was a one of the the one of the founders. I think he's from South Carolina, who was Jewish. Uh, even so, um, okay. still the Holy Bible, right? Um, but well-read in, in classic literature, so Greek and Roman literature. Uh, literature, the history, the poetry, the plays, all of this, um, and so the humanities, in mm-hmm. fact. Um, and so their understanding of humanity was well-informed by their understanding of the humanities uh, mm-hmm. in the classical humanities, not whatever somebody wants to say now about life as if it's true, but um, something that stood the test of time because it provided insight into the human condition, something like William Shakespeare, something like, you know, his works like, you know, Jeffrey Chaucer, et cetera. Anyway, um, because of this, I think, and because of an unusual ability to spend time thinking, okay, and this was in part for some of them, Madison included, uh, because they had slaves doing the work. Um, their ability to sit still and think i think most closely approximates in the modern setting that of an academic who has tenure and so somebody else is earning his bread as it were or her bread and so they're allowed to think about what they wish to think about teach a couple of classes once every two years or what have you and devote themselves to what they're passionate about in terms of their scholarship Mm -hmm. and the practical reason for supporting that is because of what the scholarship produces Mm -hmm. right because they they alone position themselves to come up with these insights on a regular basis, it's worth us tolerating. And if you don't feel like tolerating it, um, just be happy when they work for private universities because then you don't have to tolerate it. You're not paying for it. Uh, of course, if they're you know University of Michigan, any of the California university system schools, then somebody's paying for it. but anyway um, so I think it's that they could tap into that deep well of the classics including the historical works and see as they did in several of these, you know, uh, for example, okay, so how did the Greeks get it wrong? How many different variations of a Republic did the Greeks have? Mm -hmm. And then what, you know, what led to their collapse? Um, these men were all familiar with those instances. Uh, and they were also, frankly, um, very verbal in terms of their, uh, expression of their ideas. Um, the debates that Benjamin Franklin didn't wish to be disclosed must have been lively and exciting, uh, because these men could articulate well what they were thinking, could reason well, could make, you know, very good arguments and put many lawyers to shame, no doubt. Um, of course, many of them were lawyers, but that—that that, that is actually not the point here. It's that they, the the oral exchange of ideas and that oral clash of ideas to to kind of you know have iron sharpen iron and resolve with the best idea or the best compromise of two ideas um that's how they went about things that's how they went about things debate that's how they went about things right Um, and whether it was in writing or in because i mean with with thomas jefferson for example um, it's his writing that he's known for, and consistently, both you know the Declaration of Independence, and then Virginia's Constitution, um, and then also his his personal letters. You know, mm-hmm. he was a very articulate man in writing. Whereas there were others who were better orally. Um, uh, Patrick Henry was obviously one of those. Um, I think Hamilton was also, Madison was known because uh, his arguments made a whole lot of sense. They were sound, but his delivery was poor. And so, you know, you can read in, in backgrounds, mine is by Clinton Rossiter in my uh, version of the Federalist Papers, um, that edition, excuse me, um, They talked about Madison's voice and how it was quiet. And so it, it caused people to have to calm down to hear what he was saying, which of course would boost the gravity of what he was saying whenever he spoke um and so uh i think those things help
0: well and speaking of the greek classics i mean federalist number six and again the version i have has tons of notes in the back but the federalist number six references pericles um the samnians um the meganerysians uh inhabitants of an ancient greek island uh phidias the peloponnesian war um the Athenian Commonwealth, um, and then goes directly into Henry VIII, <laughs> uh, goes into Shays' Rebellion, ties that to Sparta and Rome and Carthage, Hannibal, Scipio, Julius II, Holland, Venice, and that's just one paper. That's just Federalist Number 6. Um, and so is right. These men, and this is another idea that, that we're going to explore on the podcast coming up here, the back half of this year. Um, these men contextualized co- information. Now, did they have time to sit around and think because they had slaves working for them? Absolutely, yes. They lived in a slaveholding society, and isn't it horrible? Mea culpa, mea culpa, a maxima culpa. And it doesn't matter, because the fact of the matter is they lived in the society they were in, and that was the best they had at the moment. Now we can move on to looking at the things that are timeless, and the things that are timeless were their knowledge of the humanities, and this is one of the great, I think, tragedies of the modern era is that we have said, and we started doing this back with Derrida back in the 70s when Derrida and French deconstructionism really got a hold of the academy, we deconstructed everything because we said the text has no meaning. And because the text has no meaning, then there is no value to the text, thus we must throw it out. Well, if there's no value to the text, then you wind up throwing out your entire foundations of your culture, and you wind up throwing out the entire foundation of your enterprise, and you wind up destroying your nation-state. These gentlemen were not interested in destroying the nation-state. They were actually interested in building it up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and in preserving it. Matter of fact, back to... Uh, Federalist Number Ten for just a moment. The it's a it's a it's a, this is a great point. He says uh, Madison again in uh, Number Ten. From this view of the subject, it may be concluded that a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, can admit of no cure for the mischiefs of faction. A common passion or interest will, in almost every case, be felt by a majority of the whole. A communication and concert. And concert results from the form of government itself, and there is nothing to check the inducements to sacrifice the weaker party or an obnoxious individual. Hence, it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Theoretic politicians who have patronized this species of government have erroneously supposed that by reducing mankind to a perfect equality in their political rights, they would at the same time be perfectly equalized and assimilated in their possessions, their opinions, and their passions. We are doing this now in our current era. Um, Why didn't the founding fathers like democracies? Many people we, we use it we throw this word around left and right these days. We don't we don't know anymore what the difference is between a democracy and a republic. And when you say that the United States is a constitutional republic, people stare at you like you've grown a third head. So what is the difference between a republic and a democracy? And why were the founding fathers opposed to democracy? Well, oh, um... or Madison anyway.
1: He Jeffers would probably, like de- <laughs> <Jefferson laughs> probably
0: like democracy, but...
1: <laughs> in certain respects, he did, yes. So democracy being the form of government in which the authority ultimately resides with the people, but also, and certainly in a direct democracy, um, as a form of government where the individual citizens um, actually participate in their own governance. And so they show up at the councils. The, the prototypical example in our country that remains to this day it's the town meeting of new england okay and it is no it's not a quirk of history or an accident um that new england of all sets of english colonies in america to be distinguished from the mid-atlantic colonies and certainly from the southern colonies that new england did direct democracy and some parts still do uh is fitting uh was fitting because they came from the, the the new england was settled um, chiefly by Britons from the eastern part of Great Britain, um, Norfolk, Suffolk, Lincolnshire, these places, a little bit of London, but mostly where I just said, um, they were much more populous then than now, um, the proportions I mean, okay, um, but they were a commercially oriented part of the UK that um, had many dealings with the continent, but just went about exercising their rights individually in ways that their fellow countrymen from, uh, let's say Wiltshire did not, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, the, the West Midlands did not. Um, and there, there are very many reasons for that that it, it's it's too complicated to get in, but suffice to say, Um, They were used to exercising their rights and having power over their lives. And so when they came to uh, New England, um, they invested it, as it were, with that spirit. Okay, And so that that's democracy. That's how democracy works. In contrast, in a republic, um, the free citizens um, do not participate in their own governance other than by electing their rulers, whether they be legislators or a magistrate here being a reference to an executive. Okay. Um, and in certain instances, when judges were chosen and others, they weren't uh, popularly elected. But the point being um, in a republic, there is a representative form of government that allows for um, greater efficiencies and effectiveness in terms of not just policymaking in the governance, but also allowing the society to do, to pursue its own ends, you know, for which the government was constituted to protect that society. You know, one of the funny, maybe funny is the wrong word, but Madison in Federalist 10 makes a statement about why government exists, its chief end. And then he contradicts himself in Federalist 45. And I find it interesting because, um, one was written later than the other, right? And so I don't know if his views evolved over time to approach a more broad ends for which government was said to exist. But in, in, in Federalist 10, he said, but the most common and durable source of factions has been the, the various and unequal distribution of property. Right? And then, pardon me. As he stated, it? now it's here. No, the founding father, the, I found Madison, it.
0: was consumed with property. We're going to talk about that in just a second too, because that's another thing that jumps out. I found really it. Read it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. To
1: secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction, and at the same time to preserve the spirit and form of popular government.
0: No, sorry. I'll find it. I'll find it. Well, okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about property. Let's take a little jog on that. So. Modern peoples do not understand – this is one of the frustrations that I hear from folks um, – once every few years, right? Uh, why were the founding fathers – why were why were they so focused on property? Uh, who cares about property? Um, particularly in this generation, the last couple of generations where – We now have a group of people who are in the world who um, live on subscription services where they don't really want to rent, or sorry, where they don't really want to own, they want to rent. There's a lot of talk about how it is just too difficult to own a home. I'm hearing more and more of that in the popular culture, and thus we will not do that. Um, By the way, the oldest members of that generation who are saying those things are in their 40s now, they are not young, they are not children, they are adults, right? Right. And these are adults who have a mindset that it is too hard to own property, who cares? Um, And then the generation behind them is going to live potentially, if they're not careful, in a Klaus swab, bug-eating nightmare where they will own nothing and like it. What is the importance of property? And why is that at the core of what many of these Federalist Papers were concerned with?
1: Well, property was freedom, and the first species of freedom, uh, freedom that common people had, okay, which is to say, not barons, not dukes, not kings. The very first freedoms that they enjoyed um, on a wide scale in in the United Mm -hmm. Kingdom, they were property rights, okay, including inheritance rights and things like that. And so when you look at the development of these ideas about what would later be termed natural rights, okay, and there's of course a bit of an irony to that, right? Because if the rights are natural and thus pre-existed human societies, then the rights didn't develop in quotation marks. Um, They were always there. It's the the conception, the understanding of those rights. That's what had to develop, but anyway. I digress in my lawyerly fashion um (laughs) but uh property rights were were fundamental to um to freedom uh liberty was was property and i found the passage too um found it the diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate now it's interesting right there because of course he's talking about rights plural of property Mm -hmm. And I think that fits And the the easiest modern analog is we can think of um, intellectual property rights, mineral rights, okay? Um, And other types of rights or concessions that people retain or, um, you know, alienate to other people, sell to other people um, are different species of property rights. You know, they're all property, but anyway. Uh, The diversity in the faculties of men from which the rights of property originate is not less an insuperable obstacle to a uniformity of interests. The protection of these faculties is the first object of government, period. And then he has a very different idea, I would argue, or at a minimum, he phrases it distinctly differently in Federalist 45 and there are implications for post postmodern societies like ours because of the choice of words. Um, it is too early for politicians to presume on our forgetting that the public good, the real welfare of the great body of the people comma is the supreme object to be pursued oh, okay. So we went from the very first thing is property to the public good. Or the public whatever good. Whatever that right. means. The, the real welfare. and general welfare. welfare. <laughs> and not, and not just of individuals, but the great body of the people. It sounds so socialist. Um, and, you know, it's possible he was saying the same thing. It's just his phraseology, uh, the distinctions in, in, in his diction matter. Mm-hmm. You know? Um and it's interesting back to, to number 10, you know, there's a um, there's a proto uh, Marxist fiction in there, and it wasn't one he was supporting, he was pointing it out. And I remember seeing it and writing You know, this is a proto-Marxist fiction, quote, theoretic politicians, whatever that is. I don't know what a theoretic politician is. I think it's people talking about politics, whether or not they actually do it. Right. Uh, But anyway, theoretic politicians who have patronized this species of government have erroneously supposed that by reducing mankind to a perfect equality in their political rights, they would at the same time be perfectly equalized and assimilated in their possessions, Mm -hmm. their opinions, and their passions. And of course, part of what Marx was driving at, right? The, the way to do justice in society is to basically destroy this right where we've been talking about, namely the right of property. Um, because this way we can distribute equally, evenly, equitably, whatever the buzzword is now, um, the fruits of everyone's labors.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. I think Madison would have had something to say about that from Federalist Paper Number 51. About the separation of power. This is going to be a long jog, so bear with me. But this goes directly to what DiRolo was just saying about Marx's objection to the historical dialectic. of capitalism in order to lay a due foundation for that separate and distinct exercise of the different powers of government which to a certain extent is admitted on all hands to be essential to the preservation of liberty it is evident that each department should have a will of its own and consequently should be so constituted that the members of each should have as little agency as possible on the appropriate on the appointment of members uh, of the others were this principle rigorously adhered to, it would require that all the appointments for the supreme executive, legislative, and judiciary magistracies should be drawn from the same fountain of authority, the people through channels having no communication whatever with one another. Perhaps such a plan of constructing the several departments would be less difficult in practice than it may be than it may in contemplation appear. Some difficulties, however, and some additional expense would attend to the execution of it. Some deviations, therefore, from the principle must be admitted. In the Constitution of the Judiciary Department in particular, it might be inexpedient to insist rigorously on the principle. First, because peculiar qualifications being essential in the members, the primary consideration ought to be to select that mode of choice which best secures these qualifications. Second, because the permanent tenure by which the appointments are held in that department must soon destroy all sense of dependence on the authority conferring them. We must have an independent judiciary. It is equally evident the members of each department should be as little dependent as possible on those of the others for the emoluments annexed to their offices. By the way, we're going to go back to emoluments in just a moment here. Where the executive, magistrate, or the judge is not independent of the legislature in this particular, their independence in every other would be merely nominal. But the great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachment Of the others. The provision for defense must, in this, as in all cases, be made commensurate to the danger of attack. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. And then here's the kicker it may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? (laughs) If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself. The dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. <laughs> the general problem, not the general, the specific problem I have with Marxism as a fundamental theory of organizing people is that it ignores human nature. Fundamentally, it, it is so far into the technological weeds. It is a victim of, not science, that's a different thing. It is a victim of scientism. It is the scientism thinking that infects Marxism. Uh, And everything that Marxism touches from psychology, in the case of Freud, to evolution, in the case of Darwin, all the way to, well, even Nietzsche, which we'll talk about him on the podcast coming up here in just a few weeks Um, Marxism poisons everything that it touches Because it ignores human nature And it ignores human nature in the most base of ways It ignores human nature by saying we don't need anything We just need to govern each other Madison would say yes we need to govern each other But human nature does reign supreme And we uh, we must acknowledge it Even if we are agnostic to it And we must acknowledge its power as it is supreme hubris and arrogance that does not do that. And that's what fundamentally, one of many things fundamentally, that annoys me about Marxism and has for years. Um, I think for me it's corruption. It leads to to corruption. It leads to corruption because when you ignore human nature, well, as Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, then everything is possible. (laughs) So, I mean, there you go.
1: What I mean is, because man is corrupt, um, Marxism is never going to work. As you, I believe, have been, you know, pointing out, it, the foundation upon which it lays its great gamble, okay, mm-hmm. uh, is a foundation of sand. It cannot stand because that's not how human beings are constituted. Um, you know, it, was it David Hume? Um, wow. life is short, nasty, and brutish.
0: Oh, the, no, no, um, no, 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 that's uh, Thomas Hobbes. Thank you, Thomas that's Hobbes,
1: Thomas. Leviathan.
0: And yes, so Leviathan. Um, the
1: reason that life is short, nasty, and brutish is because we are short, nasty, and brutish. So, um, you know, that, that that's among the chief causes of why life is like that. And so when you take that into account, one should not be surprised when You take away everybody else's rights and all of a sudden property is not distributed equally, that the people at the top are as corrupt as the people they just liquidated literally, Mm -hmm. if not more corrupt. And then Marxism necessarily requires centralization. And so that brings more people under the control and power and influence of these malign murderers and then – you end up with a bloodbath over and over and over and over.
0: Well, and, and I, so I, their I'm unwillingness
1: go to the well, second I'm, thing is their unwillingness to to admit you're right. All these other times we tried it, it failed. It failed in Russia. Failed in Cuba. Failed in Venezuela. Failed in China. They they won't. It failed in North Korea. They won't admit that, and that's one of the things I find frustrating about well, it. Well, they
0: can't they can't admit the failure because again, everything Marxism touches, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, Vaclav Havel spoke about the necessity of a lie, and, and Havel talked about this most notably in The Power of the Powerless, um, the necessity of a lie to keep the system going. Fundamentally, Marxism is built on lies. It's built on a lie about human nature. It's built on a lie about history. It's built on a lie about class, classes and, and the... the the tensions, not struggles, the tensions between them. It's even built on a lie and how it refers to people. I mean, workers. Every time we say workers, <laughs> in the, I, I want to cringe. You're, you're not a worker. We're not. We're not Marxists. We're not communists. This is not a communist collective. And by the way, here's the other place the lie is built on. And we've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it bears repeating. Anytime you see a country with a name democratic and republic in it, more likely than not, it is not democratic and it is not a republic. Isn't it great? (laughs) And that is the lie that underlies Marxism. It is a lie. And well, we all know who the father of lies is, right? From the beginning. So the other dynamic that you see in the Federalist Papers, and you have to put it in the appropriate historical context, is Rousseau's boys were having a heck of a time in France. And these guys knew about all of this. And Rousseau was the original... Man is great, society is flawed, kind of guy, and we can just build a new world here in the world we're in. And they saw this guy. Um, Jefferson was probably a little bit more connected to that than maybe some of the other founding fathers. He paid a little, I, I suspect, the founding fathers. <laughs> Uh, attention to France waned, depending upon their level of interest. <laughs> I think John Adams was probably very interested in what was going on over there. Um, Hamilton only in terms of money, because that's all he really cared about at the end of the day. Um, and then, and um, and then, uh, and then, of course, Jefferson, because he wanted to be a feat and elite. And so that was the place that you went to go and do that kind of stuff. Um, but beyond those guys, I mean, they were seeing the newspaper reports. They were getting the letters of what was happening in France um talk a little bit about the rousseauian french revolution that was going on parallel which of course didn't end by the way when the american revolution ended i mean went right into napoleon and went right into strongman politics which is of course where all of this stuff winds up at um it's the original proto-marxism right mm.
1: um kind of i think marxism is a creature of the industrial revolution in a way that distinguishes it from, you know, France and its Jacobinism. I mean, obviously they share certain, you know, fundaments, but um, Marxism is industrial. Hmm. It, it thrives in urban areas and in concentration. Um, and, you know, French society uh, at the time was um French power was highly concentrated, but the society was diffused most of the country easily most of the country lived outside of paris um france is a is a nation that has one head and one heart um, unlike the United States of America. Um, I guess we're a multi-hearted hydra, right <laughs> <laughs> thought about it that way but it's funny we have several heads and several hearts and that that helps preserve our liberty um and so uh but yes um the the agitation that would build up to the actual revolution in 1789 uh was obviously already going it was already going on when jefferson was living in france as the u.s ambassador um in the 1780s uh and uh, you know would would come to a head right around the time uh, the U.S. Constitution was being ratified. Um, but I, I, I guess it's a traditional distinction in how the revolution. I agree with you that you know it didn't really end until the second time Napoleon was defeated in 1815. Um, but I think the, the the traditional distinction in terms of the time of the revolution is 1789 to 1791. Um, really was one attempt. And I thought a valiant attempt to take um, a government that really represented 2% of the French nation and defined itself as being representative of the French nation and made it into a government that much, that, that, that represented a far greater percentage of French men and French women. Um, and to their credit, they talked about, you know, um, women's rights, uh, almost contemporaneously with what was going on and that, that, uh, that obviously wasn't the case in America, but anyway, um, that period when I guess that's the, um, I'm likening it to growing up as a human growing up as a man and so i think this is the that was its young adult phase where everything is uh dreams and possibilities and you have this new power and you're going to achieve so much right and then there was a
0: horror that
1: followed it and i don't know what to liken it to middle age Um, no, I was thinking that, but there there could be some soundness that come. Thankfully, there's some soundness that can come with middle age. And soundness didn't really come, uh, I think, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the French society struggled with the tensions between a, a, a heretofore politically disenfranchised mass of 98% of the nation and the two percent who owned and ran everything uh except businesses, because that's what the tiers al did um anyway uh that struggle would go on just about for a century you know it was, it was really, really difficult um for them to find their republican footing small r um and i don't I don't really know if that came until. The Prussians defeated them in the 1870s as part of the unification of Germany. They lost Alsace and Lorraine. Yep.
0: That pointless summer war. That pointless summer war. (laughs)
1: Right. But then, um, the Third Republic uh, Uh, was inaugurated, and that republic, if I'm not mistaken, let me make sure I'm not wrong. Oh, that's weird. Pardon me. Yeah, I was I'm correct. The Third French Republic is still the longest French Republic. <laughs> it still has outlasted the the current republic uh, for you know for your audience who don't know the current French Republic, okay? The current government of France is mm-hmm. called the Fifth Republic, the Fifth okay? Republic. It was started on uh, the 4th of October 1958 by Charles de Gaulle okay, who basically wrote a constitution and had it by plebiscite adopted, okay, which for the record is far more efficient than our framers way of establishing a new government, okay, far more democratic. Also, I might point out, but anyway, that that is only possible. That only became possible, I think, with both the telecommunications advances, but also the, um, and and France had less of this problem than the United States, but society became um, much more uniform over time. One of the, in my view, defects of um, the Federalist as um, let's call it a philosophy about American governance. Okay, as well as commentary on the constitution. To me, one of its flaws um, is its failure to anticipate, well, within it are sown the seeds of some of our present discontents, okay? And one of the things that they did not perceive, and it, had, it has bearing in the Federalist numbers we referred to, is how society would grow uniform. So think of Federalist 10. Madison seemed to conceive of an ever-expanding republic with an ever-increasing number of factions, And instead, what you had was an ever-increasing in terms of size republic, but an ever more homogenous society and thus a decrease in the number of factions. And when you throw in the telecommunications advances, all of a sudden it makes the multiplication of factions even harder. And so what we have had is these two behemoths who have such gravity politically that they basically, and I'm referring obviously to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, have such gravity that they basically suck into themselves any attempt to form another party. And thus we're left with two collections of factions, but because the number and nature of factions is not as relevant as the number and power of those parties, that's what's governing things. And so I don't believe they anticipated that. I think de Tocqueville did, but I don't think Madison or Hamilton or Jay anticipated um, that society would become uniform like that. Um, And of course, for de Tocqueville who came, uh, I don't chalk it up to – well. Yes, he obviously was a genius and he was certainly insightful and perceptive beyond the norm. But the time frame in which he came in the 1830s, that gave him an advantage that these men did not have. Okay. The first 50 years of the growth of the nation had already happened at that point. And so, um, and neither Hamilton nor Madison lived to see, wait, yes, neither. I know Hamilton didn't obviously because of that tragedy with him and Aaron Burr
0: um well by the time de Tocqueville shows up certain certain oh, things are already... he was there
1: Madison was there Madison yeah he died in 1836 okay. this is why I had to check <laughs> he died in 1836 so he would be he died at age 85 so he would live to be able to see you know beyond the first uh 50 years of uh the American nation's growth to see oh okay well what kind of people have we become
0: you know uh well, and there were certain things that were baked in to the cake by that point that you weren't going to be able to extricate. Um, the biggest thing baked into the cake was the tension between slave and free, which we haven't even t- discussed that. Uh, so the Federalist Papers doesn't even touch on that. They, they don't even want to get near that, which I understand why. Um and I want to gradually I want to ask you a question about Thomas Jefferson here because one of the one of the more glaring silences on the Constitution is Thomas Jefferson. Um, and we're gonna read anti-federalist uh, papers here coming up in our next episode. And so you know, there may be there's gonna be some things from Jefferson in there, some thoughts from him in there. But it is glaring how little Jefferson had to say about the Constitution um and how silent he was on the 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 dynamics and the structure and the tension. And well, I mean, let's go to what's baked in. So let's go to slavery. Um these letters and I started this off this started this off this episode by talking about how these letters were directed towards people who were in New York but not Virginia. Why not Virginia? Why was Virginia's opinion not But um, why were the people of Virginia not appealed to by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay? Because Virginia was the counterbalance to New York at that time.
1: Hmm. I don't know. It's a good question. Um, Because then it seems like there's elements on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Virginia was much more, well, I take that back. They were both hierarchical, just not in the same sense. Um. New York's hierarchy then and now will always place capital above birth, um, always. And so any billionaire can trump in New York and begin to throw his or her weight around in New York society. Period. Um, I mean, New York society produced society. New York society produced the phenomenon we know as Donald J. Trump. Um, <laughs> New York could do that. Okay. Right. Um, and New York can produce and has produced opponents. Uh, okay. Michael Bloomberg, who's mm-hmm. from Massachusetts. Right. New York is how he became who he is. Right. So uh, obviously not a fan of Donald J. Trump, to my knowledge. Uh, New York society helped shape and make both of them. That's how New York works. That is not how Virginia worked <laughs> in 1788. And so um, they had their elite, their elite. Knew each other, they were interrelated, and so they were very solid, right? Um, And thus, on the one hand, it seems like ratification would have been a given. At the same time, there is that issue of slavery. And the, you know, baked into the Constitution was an end to the slave trade, but not an end to the institution of um, involuntary servitude for life and perpetually, meaning it passed to the descendants regardless of sex and so it is um it was heinous heinous. excuse me um but you know there there's an irony to it you were talking that uh, there in my opinion there's a divine irony to it that that um you touched on when you were talking about rousseau uh and the belief in constructing basically a new Eden right mm-hmm.
0: a, um, new is, a new Israel basically right, That's a new Israel a new Eden. talked about the United States.
1: Right. And the builder of both Eden and Israel is God and not people. And so if he wants to do that, fine. Anybody else tries, they are going to fail. And thus I, the descendant of uh, men and women who are enslaved in America, the descendant of men and women who owned slaves in America, um, I appreciate the irony that people said this is a new world and we're creating this just society and there's all of this freedom and right in the very heart of the society is perpetual involuntary servitude. Can there be a greater sign that, wait a minute, what is really going on here? What is actually going on here? Is this really liberty? Are you really committed to these ideas? Now, um, the historian Colin Woodard has written a book that does a very good job. Um, it's called American Nations. And he has a theory, it's not, it doesn't originate with him. I think there was a there's an American with a French name, I think it's Gatineau or something like that, but who wrote a book uh, published, I believe in 1980. This is very hard for me to get my hands, on. but anyway. Uh, it's so hard that I bought it off of Amazon and a different book showed up. Like literally, like I yeah, finally yeah. bit the bullet, got it, and a different book shows up. It's really frustrating. But anyway, the, the 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 theory that both of these men, um
0: by the way, Jeff Bezos was made in New York too.
1: Dang, there you go. See? New York. <laughs> new York mints new elites. Anyway. <clears throat> um and mint no pun, right? Because yeah. it to do with money. Um uh
0: You made the point that the book that you ordered.
1: Yes, thank you. So there, There I I apologize for the brain fart. So (laughs) their theory is basically that there wasn't slash isn't one American nation, but several. And that the real unlikely event was that these people would actually be able to come together at all because they were founded by different populations at different times with different founding principles. Okay. Um, And so in Woodard's book, one of the sub ideas he develops is the differing notions of freedom between, for example, the New Englanders and the Virginians. And so he uses um, language well in making his point. And so he talks about libertas coming from Latin, of course, meaning liberty, right, or freedom, but he uses it in a way that harkens back to a Greco-Roman notion of liberty where I might be a free man and you can't enslave me, but I can turn around and enslave other people, and it doesn't mean I don't believe in my own freedom or in freedom. It's just I have and you don't, and so I can do this to you because I have it, and you can't do anything because you don't have it, okay, versus the German notion, Freiheit, which is much more uniform and much Clear in terms of the modern American conception of freedom, which is we as a group are free and possess the same rights. And so that is a very much New England idea. And as I said earlier in this podcast, if you look at the origins of um, the, those founding colonists, far and above were, were from um, east, the eastern part of England where this notion of freedom was what was reigning, no pun, was what was reigning. And so um, it fits. So here you have, you know, back to the point, you have Virginia and it's like, okay, um, how are they going to handle this? Now, they've got compromises that help them. Right. Mm -hmm. They're going to get the most representatives and they're going to get. um, Well, they're going to get the most representatives because of their population and they're going to have a mechanism of counting their population that doesn't provide too much of a discount for their unfree population, you know? Um, And so I think they had things to be happy about, but they also had, you know, Patrick Henry. So (laughs) they had a very vocal, very passionate um, man from the Hills, right? Uh, A borderlander to borrow an idea Woodward talked about and also, Um, David Hackett Fisher talked about in his phenomenal seminal work Albion Seed, which goes through many of these concepts I've been talking about for the last five minutes, Um, but Patrick Henry was a borderlander and he functioned very much like somebody from Appalachia.
0: No, with all, the, no, with but, all but that, that that means. That, but
1: that's the seed <laughs> to it. Right. That's the cultural seed to it. They later on functioned like that because he and his forebears were there functioning the way they did. You know, um, it's well, not we, meant to be an insult, it's meant to be a cultural reference that shows pretty quickly oh, okay, I have a notion of a certain type of behavior in person. Yes, he was one of the best colonial examples of that.
0: Well, and it's and the irony is, and you talk about multiple Americas, not just one, the two poles in the original 13 colonies were New York and Virginia. I mean, they were just the two poles. Yes, you had Georgia. You had what James Oglethorpe was setting up down there, but that wasn't really a thing at that point. Um, and you also had South Carolina. And yes, I will be dismissive. I will dismiss South Carolina. You had Virginia. Virginia was the big dog. I mean, give me a break. Let's be real here. And so, uh, and if you want to push the analogy for those of us who are listening in other countries, because we have listeners worldwide who don't understand the history of America, this will be some, this will be some interesting, uh, some interesting spice for you. When you think about Virginia, the analogy you should think of is, um, is uh, Georgia was to Virginia what Mexico is to the United States these days, right? And, uh, and so Virginia was the big dog in the South. Um, everything, everybody went along with whatever Virginia wanted. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, much later on, <laughs> that was going to be a problem much later on. Anyway, everyone went along with what Virginia wanted. Whereas in New England, New York was the big dog. Um, yes, Pennsylvania was there. Um, but the Dutch really couldn't. Totally get their act together. Um, they did have prestige, but they couldn't totally coalesce for a whole variety of reasons that had to do with religion and how the Dutch um, looked at the formation of their society uh, and the formation of their state. So New York was the big dog. And so you had these two poles right in the original 13 colonies. And it is a glaring omission. Um, and it is pointed out in the Federalist Papers that, or not pointed out in the Federalist Papers, critics of the Federalist Papers have pointed out that no one really went and talked to the Virginians from New England. And that reverberates forward into um, the Civil War, when a man from the West, who was not a Virginian, nor a New Englander, but came from a different America, not an Appalachian America either, but a different America. The West. That's right. Would have most to,
1: American of regions.
0: That's right. Would have to be the one that would bind all of this together in, as he put it, a new birth of freedom. Not hearkening back to a Greco-Roman conception, and not beholden to a conception of Scottish honor codes or any of that nonsense, but instead beholden to the idea that we are not united. States, we are the United States, and that's a fundamental language shift, by the way, that didn't occur till after the Civil War. Um, As I've said before on this podcast, after 750,000 white people bled, the language changed. Mm -hmm. Um, and to go towards the cosmic significance of this, uh, well. The Old Testament God always requires you to pay a tax. Wages of sin or death. And God takes the taxes out. Speaking of taxation.
1: Yeah, you have a Federalist highlighted on taxation.
0: I do have a Federalist highlighted on taxation. Let's go to Alexander Hamilton, the money man. Uh, Federalist number 30. Considering the general power of taxation because you would think these guys all came out of they just went through the the revolutionary war fundamentally the revolutionary war was about representation um it was also about secondarily taxation not primarily but secondarily about taxation and so what would these gentlemen have to say about taxation Federalist well, this, number 30 This
1: gentleman had some things to say about taxation
0: <laughs> Federalist number 30 Alexander Hamilton. And no, as I've pointed out before, no, not the Lynn Miranda version of Alexander Hamilton either. By the way, you can That's good me, art, though. You can That's well, good like send him an email, tell him to email me, we can have a chat. It, it has already art. been observed <laughs> that the federal government ought to possess the power of providing for the support of the national forces. In which proposition was intended to be included the expense of raising troops, of building and equipping fleets, and all other expenses in any wise connected with military arrangements and operations. But these are not the only objects to which the jurisdiction of the Union in respect to revenue must necessarily be empowered to extend. It must embrace a provision for the support of the national civil list, for the payment of the national debts contracted or that may be contracted, and in general for all those matters which will call for disbursements out of the national treasury. The conclusion is that there must be interwoven in the frame of the government a general power of taxation in one shape or another. Money is, with propriety, considered as the vital principle of the body politic, as that which sustains its life and motion and enables it to perform its most essential functions. A complete power, therefore, to procure a regular and adequate supply of revenue, as far as the resources of the community will permit, may be regarded as an indispensable ingredient in in every constitution. From a deficiency in this particular, one of two evils must ensue. Either the people must be subjected to continual plunder as a substitute for a more eligible mode of supplying the public wants, or the government must sink into a fatal atrophy and in a short course of time, perish. Uh Ah. Hamilton tied taxation to energy, to money, to success in a way that none of the other founding fathers did. As a matter of fact, I think probably the majority of them found it to be gauche and probably to, well, gauche. <laughs> they would use the term gauche um, and obscene probably. But Hamilton struck strikes me very much as being an erudite accountant. who understands at a a scale the nature of what money is uh, and the nature of how money works. And when you're in a room of guys who are either humanities majors or jumped up landed gentry, your accountant walks in and says you have no more money. (laughs) Or we have to figure out a way to create money because you can be landed all you want, but if you can neither buy nor sell... It does not matter. You can be um, you can be sitting in a room uh, thinking while your property does all the work. But mm-hmm. if you cannot buy or sell any of your property, it does not matter. Hamilton comes off as being when it comes to money anyway, the area he knows, and when it comes to taxation, he comes off as being practical. Why is that? What is it specifically about him and about his posture towards taxation? <sighs> That sort of allowed the founding fathers to kind of let him get away with some things. Um, and later on he was in George Washington's government. We could talk a little bit about that too. but um George Washington's administration, much to the chagrin of Thomas Jefferson. but mm. uh <laughs> but uh, what made him so oriented in that direction? Was it because he came up out of poverty? or was it just like there's just certain people with these kinds of skills and you just got to let people go in their particular skill set?
1: Um. I think it's, uh, certainly there's some, there's more of the former in my view than the latter and explaining why Hamilton, you know, exhibited this genius, not just for finance, but for public finance. Mm-hmm. Um, this I think, a totally you know, different
0: beasts in private finance, by the way.
1: Yes, but they're related. They're related creatures. I think it's like comparing a house cat to a tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the same uh, genus, but they are not the same species of beast. Um, and uh, so, with 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 um, <laughs> with Hamilton, that famous bastard out of the West Indies, right? Who yep. found himself in New York? Uh, that's literally what he was called. Just in case you don't know, and are um, guffawing at my expression. This is what, and I'm, you know, maybe. Um, Lin-Manuel has has made that, you know, now it's well-known, wonderful. But anyway, um, yes, that's how he was um, slandered. But anyway, um, came out of the West Indies, came to a society that was also commercially oriented, but actually had potential for real growth and dynamism, unlike the West Indies. Um, so... Coming to that society oriented that way and then coming from the bottom and as an attorney, being able to work his way up and being able to seize opportunities. Um, I think these factors helped, um, you know, grow and and mature his understanding of, of finance. Um, and so uh, I don't know how he was able to make that leap to public finance, but he did have a good internship when he served as one of General Washington's uh, at the camp, right? Mm-hmm. right? And so would write the, would basically do administrative functions for this great general, but from that position would be able to see, you know, how an army was governed, see what the real problems were of supply, um, supplies of um, men and material, supplies of food. Um, and also one of the chief bugbears of General Washington during the war was finance in that he struggled to be able to pay soldiers, merchants, and others, and he hated it. Now of the founding fathers who actually understood finance also, George Washington was one of them. And the reason was, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting in trying to compare the backgrounds of the two men. Right. But each of them started off in a socially, um, I don't want a socially unprivileged position. Okay. Washington wasn't the oldest son. And, um, and then I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, we ended up being raised by his brother anyway, because of the early death of his father. Right. And then where the Washington family was at that time bore only a slight, you can see they they were in the same stadium. Okay. But they weren't even necessarily uh, on the field, let alone playing and winning the game. And so um, all of that change is due largely to the Herculean efforts of the founder of our country. So um, anyway, one of the changes he put in place, I believe in the 1760s, were financial ones because he saw the fundamental inequity of the British colonial, sorry, the British imperial mercantile system, okay? And he basically saw that he was going to be built in London, and that he wasn't going to have control. And so he actively went about constructing a better foundation for the financing of his household, if we want to look at it that way. And he was largely successful. Um, he did not end his life in colossal debt like TJ did. Um, and like some of the others did. Um, TJ did not understand finance. That was not Jefferson's thing. Um he didn't understand greatness. All three of these men, Hamilton, Washington, and Jefferson all understood greatness. And I think they all pursued greatness according to their own individual genius, uh, And but they were differently constituted. And so um, Jefferson's genius seemed to be in being able to sum up in eloquent words, what, in eloquent words for posterity, for forever as it were, why the Americans were basically kissing goodbye uh, the third George of the house of Hanover. Um, and obviously didn't care about parliament. <laughs> um, it was George the whom, third whom they were kissing goodbye because they didn't elect anybody to parliament. So why would parliament ever have the gall to rule them? But anyway, that was the first bit. The second bit though, was the Louisiana purchase. Um Jefferson and Washington were both mad, in quotation marks, about the West. Each of them saw the West and the American, meaning the settlement of the North American continent, chiefly by American colonials, okay, and then, you know, recent immigrants, at that time, recent immigrants. um, They saw that as being somehow chief in, in critical to the formation of the American nation and its greatness. Each of them was able to perceive that at that early of the date, okay? Um, and, and it's ha- I think it's hard to conceive nowadays because we look at maps that show accurately the contours of our continent. We have a notion of what the different regions look like. We can get that from television. We can get that from books and pictures and things. They had none of those things. They did not know how far the continent extended. They did not know, they didn't know. And so they're looking into the dark as it were and seeing something that was there. And it's, it's profound. Um, but anyway, um, Hamilton and his genius were not about, um, you know, running an army (laughs) (laughs) weren't about, um, how to placate politicians who disagree with you. Okay. He did not do that very well, obviously. Um, and there's certain other things he didn't do very well, but he, he got public finance. He really, really got public finance. Um, and it's impressive. And, and in that you know very short Federalist 30, I thought he did a very good job of explaining what now is axiomatic. And the reason why it's axiomatic, the shame of the reason why it's axiomatic is that our notions of what governments cannot do Have been so reduced that we read it and say oh of course they need to tax they just fought a war about who could tell whom to give revenue to which body that's why they were fighting you know taxation without representation is tyranny we put it on the license plates of washington dc and yet continue to deny to Washington DC representation in Congress that is real rather than representative in some other sense. Um, So I guess we still haven't learned that lesson. But anyway, they knew that. And so I thought he did a very good job of setting out, you know, why the new federal government would need to tax. And it's interesting, because he's got a passage in here, where he touches upon why governments exist, Mm -hmm. quote, How is it possible that a government half supplied and always necessitous can fulfill the purposes of its institution, can provide for the security, advance the prosperity, or support the reputation of the Commonwealth, question mark. Oh, that's why you think governments exist. Okay, and then he goes on. How can it ever possess either energy, to your point, or stability, dignity, or credit, confidence at home, or respectability abroad? How can its administration be anything else than a succession of expedients, temporizing, impotent, disgraceful? How will it be able to avoid a frequent sacrifice of its engagements to immediate necessity? How can it undertake or execute any liberal or enlarged plans of public good? Yes, this man understood finance, public finance and its difficulties and the necessity of the federal legislative body to be able to say, to individual citizens, this is what you're going to pay on sales of that, because of course we know he wasn't talking about income tax.
0: No, that I would have been entirely later. that that yeah that would have been an entirely well, I wouldn't say it entirely. I think he would leap. Have, Yeah, I, I think, think he, I leap. think he would have associated that with tyranny. I think he would have gone right it's to a nope. Leap. Yeah,
1: it's a leap, and of course it began as an expedient. Oh, we have to pay these war debts, so we'll do this. Right, right and didn't become permanent until the 19 teens. But that, um, in my view, is one of three important fundamental changes to our constitution that make the Federalist, as it were, in certain respects, just academic, okay? The direct election of senators, a permanent income tax, and term limits for presidents only are fundamental changes to this constitution all of which necessitated amendments. So they understood that to change the constitution, you have to amend it and this is the process. They understood that then. Anyway, um, those changes fundamentally reworked this constitution. And so some of the dangers that these great authors uh, were talking about in their essays, um, I think are closer to where we are today than they would have been conceivable then because of how they structured things
0: Oh, Andrew Jackson I mean I mean Andrew Jackson is yes the guy on the $20 bill that unrepentant Cherokee killer and slave owner by the way who also came out of the west um and who infamously said you know about the supreme court yeah they've made their decision let's see them enforce it um (laughs) andrew jackson wrecked the federal bank he didn't believe in it he actively said out loud i do not believe there should be a federal bank in the united states of america that is fundamentally not constitutional Mm -hmm. and it caused a tidal wave of opprobrium towards him um, it is one of the three things that he is most ground down about in history. Uh, most people would rather have anybody on the 20 other than him. <laughs> I heard a few years ago they were going to try to put Harriet Tubman on the 20, which is fine. Put whoever you want on the money. But just because you tear down the statue doesn't mean he was wrong. He was correct. Um he was correct about the separation of powers. He was correct about the appropriate function of the Constitution. And he was correct about the ability of the federal government in a centralized fashion to be checked in its tyranny in your individual pocket. And inflate the money and do a bunch of other things, which has wound us up in the space of being the single most indebted nature nation in world history currently in 2022.
1: Yep. But in a short amount of time also.
0: Yes, and in a short amount of time. And yes, you can argue as many folks have on the geopolitical uh, left and many in the geopolitical center. Uh, You can argue in the geopolitical right center, right? um, and, And even the leftists have argued this. You can argue all you want about reserve currency. And now I'm going to sound like I'm going to sound like an escapee from the the Mises Institute. But you can argue about reserve currency all day. And I get your point. And I still think that's a stopgap measure because you have to get rid of the debt. You have to figure out how to get rid of it. And uh, fundamentally, that's what kills countries. And this is what Hamilton knew. Debt Mm. kills countries. It destroys empires. It, It wrecks things. And honestly... Uh, and no one wants to say this out loud. But the only way to get rid of debt is to engage in an apocalyptic war for survival. That's the only way.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's interesting.
0: Well, I mean, and uh-huh. he mentions he mentions the I mean, in the Federalist paper, number 30 in the Ottoman or Turkish Empire, the sovereign, though, in other respects, absolute master of the lives and fortunes of his subjects, has no right to impose a new tax. The consequence is that he permits the Bashaws, or governors of the provinces, to pillage the people at discretion and, in turn, squeezes them out of the sums of which he stands in need to satisfy his own exigencies and those of the state. In America, from a like cause, the government of the Union has gradually dwindled into a state of decay, approaching nearly to annihilation. Who can doubt that the happiness of the people in both countries will be promoted by competent authorities in the proper hands to provide the revenues which the necessities of the public might require?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, um, I think he would argue in the other direction these days. I think he would say, no, it's too bloated and it needs to go uh, a little bit smaller. Uh, the government oh, he would know. A diet. Way. He
1: the would know. He down. knows that the American body politic is in great need of a serious diet. A serious diet. much more exercise. So, yes.
0: <laughs> diet and exercise. Um. As we round the corner here to our conclusion, and, and, you know, we didn't read all the Federalist Papers, just 85 of these. There's no possible way we could have read all these on the podcast and and done justice to them. It would have been a six-hour-long episode, Um, and we only do that for really interesting things. No, Um, it would have been a six-hour-long podcast episode, and we brought in a lot of elements because it does bring in a lot of elements, speaking about the humanities and the contextualization of... Uh, the Federalist Papers and pretty soon the Anti-Federalist Papers and these four podcast episodes that we are doing this month in the month of July 2022 focusing on the Declaration of Independence the Constitution uh, the Federalist Papers and fundamentally our next episode coming up the Anti-Federalist Papers um, create a foundation for you believe I believe create a foundation for leaders to uh, understand the nation-state papers of the United States in a bit of a different way Um, and to look at and to place uh, context around uh, their own leadership behaviors. These are not meant to be exhaustive, nor are they meant to be all-inclusive. They're meant to give you a taste, and so I would recommend going out and picking up your own copy of the Federalist Papers or going to the Library of Congress, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast episode. Uh, Go out and Read those. Go out and grab them. Go out and peruse them. Skim them. Go look at what Hamilton said. Go look at what John Jay said about uh, about the military and about the Navy. We didn't even read any of Jay's papers. We really focused on Hamilton and Madison um, in, this, um, in this episode. Uh, go look at what is being quoted versus just listening to someone else quoted to you. Go read that. Um, what can leaders take from the Federalist Papers? If I'm running a company what do I take from this other than, okay, that was an interesting historical jog. Hey, and DeRolo. Uh, what am I going to do with this? You know, for my next, what, what I get to how you
1: sell your changes, you know, (laughs) it's, it's this great. It's one of the best PR campaigns I can think of in the last 500 years, you know? Um, and one where the results were lasting, you know, because obviously, um, Lenin did a hell of a job, pun intended, <laughs> with his PR campaign selling Marxism to Russia. You know, look at the results. They're terrible. Uh, here you have a PR campaign and, um, you know, you can look at its form. You know, if I'm not mistaken, weekly publications um, that are short, pissy, um, but uh, – You know, still have some light enough to have eloquence, pithy enough to actually make you think, Um, and all advocacy. Okay, all driving at a certain point, and having a unified, uh, a unified structure. You know, Um, anyway, uh, I think that's a great way to do PR. So if I'm a if I'm a CEO, okay, you're the one who perceives the changes. That's your job, okay. But how are you selling them to your people? You need to 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 devote attention and effort and creativity to that. Um, because your ability to sell your, the changes, you know, are coming, your ability to sell those to your people just augments, you know, your ability to motivate them to achieve what you're trying to set them to do. <coughs> Pardon <laughs> So, um, that's one takeaway I can think of off the top of my head.
0: I think oh. another one is... And and it comes from actually from the introduction um, here to my copy of the Federalist Papers, the the Signet Classic edition with introduction and notes by a gentleman named Charles R Kessler. Um, the two volumes or main divisions of the Federalist does have two different have different themes that dictate the different points of view and kinds of argument. The theme of the first volume is the union, meaning the necessity of maintaining a firm and well-constructed union as opposed to allowing its dissolution into separate confederacies of states, i.e. the Southern Confederacy, Northern Confederacy, etc. Publius announces, quote, that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question, whether societies of men are really capable or not, of establishing good government from reflection and choice but reflective men know that politics cannot ignore the role of accident and force in human affairs. And the first volume of The Federalist is a long tutorial on the ways in which American Republicans, small r, by the way, should anticipate the threats that will inevitably be posed by accident and force. That's a lesson for leaders. Do not ignore accident and force. There are more than just evil forces operating in the world and there are more than just good ones Um, leaders have to be aware heads up paying attention eyes open uh, paying attention to what those forces are and very often um, very often it is intuition that will take you into success if you are a leader yes you need skills yes you need training Uh, yes you need contextual understanding of the world Yes, you need all of that, but you also need intuition and you need to not ignore it. Um, without intuition, battles cannot be won. I was just watching a documentary the other day about the Battle of Midway and uh, there's no way the United States should have won the Battle of Midway in World War II against the Japanese and it is only by a pilot, bomber, uh, fighter pilot, for the Americans flying around and seeing a rainbow coming up for a water spout on an Imperial Japanese destroyer that he managed to intuit that the fleet was over there and led his people with only 10 minutes of gas to spare into the fight against the Japanese. That's accident in force, and that is the intuition to understand how to capitalize on accident. Not the skill to fly the plane, not even the ability to give the order and have everybody snap to and say, yes, sir. It's not just that. It's that intuition. It's all of that other stuff that's in the bucket that is undefinable and typically undefined. There's no way to get away from politics, is there, Durolo? I mean, there's no way, right? Like you could read the Federalist Papers, you could read them for leadership, but there's no way to get away from the political aspects of this, right? Because these why are would you want to? Well, these are incredibly political documents. Um, but the the, the 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 canard these days. Remember, I opened up with this idea that being uh, non-confrontational is the highest <laughs> good. Now, being agreeable is the highest good because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Hmm. Should leaders be worried about hurting somebody's feelings? I think we talked about this on the podcast before in terms of one-on-one, in terms of identity, but when it comes to matter of, matters of vision or mission or goals, how should leaders conduct themselves?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't think, certainly in an institution that has any kind of popular franchise, failing to be attuned to other people's, sorry, failing to be attuned to followers feelings is fatal and so um, the trick is just not letting it prevent you from going where you need to go and saying what you need to say um so much of it is about how you do your delivery right um but the fact that a leader takes into consideration how he or she does his or her delivery shows that they recognize that the feelings matter. Um, But we will see, you know, the, the impact and the strength of the leadership we will see, of course, in its results and how long they last. So, um, yeah. Those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah. Civility, candor. These gentlemen, yeah, they did descend into personal attacks. Don't get me wrong. They were as ruled by human passions as any of us. And, you know, if you look at their political disagreements um, and look at what they wrote about each other politically in pursuit of faction after this Constitution had been ratified and became the law of the land, it was as if the gloves came off. One of the things that I often say to folks who are from other countries who ask us about what exactly it is that is going on over here in the United States of America is I say, we all showed up here about 10 minutes ago. And we've been fighting with each other ever since we showed up about 10 minutes ago. And that is endemic. That's not not, not endemic. That's the through line that runs through the American experience. And if we can't fight the land, if we can't fight for a higher ideal, then we will fight each other. Mm -hmm. And it is the job of leaders, I fundamentally believe, to write down the mission write down the vision, write down the goals set up a process turn the machine on and then to guide it to lead it to where it needs to go none of these men are alive now to see the results of their experiment and who knows how much longer the American experiment will go on Uh, I am firmly convinced that if and not if, when the American experiment ends because all nations come to an end at a certain point, when the American experiment ends, they, the apocryphal they that's always out in the world, in the future, far flung, will be generating volumes um, about us and about our leaders because it's really hard to wrap your brain around the idea that a people driven by a creed can be led by anything other than coercion and force. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: The American experiment is worth protecting and worth fighting for. It's also worth understanding and worth knowing, and it's also worth embedding into your thought process as a leader, into your heart as a leader, and into your actions as a leader. Because where else would you rather be leading than here? With that, I'd like to thank my guest, Derolo Nixon, for coming on, helping us stay on the path, get on the path, pursue the path. And uh, he'll be back in the next episode where we talk about the opposition (laughs) to the Constitution, Uh, the arguments opposed the anti-federalist papers. To close out our month here, on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the nation-state papers of the United States of America. And with that, we're out. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Spotify. And leave a five-star review if you like the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books Podcast. Look, we need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way that you can help us actually grow this show. And, of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started down the leadership path, uh, our products at from HSCT Publishing can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, our coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. And check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. We've got books that will help you and your team grow. So pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And subscribe to the Little Red podcast we launched earlier this year with the same name as this little red book, My Boss Doesn't Care. 100 essays on disrupting your workplace by disrupting your boss, and of course, pick up my most recent book, "12 Rules for Leaders: The Foundation of Intentional Leadership," written with Bradley Madigan. You're gonna to want to pick up a copy of that in April 2022, and you can get both of these books in paperback, hardcover, or as eBooks on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, and any other place you order books on demand. Finally. We are on YouTube, or I'm on YouTube, or someone around here is on YouTube. So like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing on YouTube and hit the subscribe button to get updates every single time we upload a new video, which we do that at least once a week. And subscribe to the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience podcast Yes, I have three podcasts on YouTube where I talk more casually with a wider range of people about all matters that matter in the world today. Everything from fatherhood to criminal justice, Christianity to artificial intelligence. We cover the entire plethora of things that are floating around in my mind, and that's why it's called an audio experience. All right, well, that's it for me. Out.